0: Thank you for joining us for this message from Cornerstone Community Church in Lynchburg, Virginia. And now, let's join our guest speaker. surprised. Me too. Pastor has a way of doing that. Um, I was going to give this to guide before we start. So, Father, thank you for the opportunity. Just calm my nerves because I can do all things through you. And thank you that you've given me a word. And I pray that it will touch people here. And that we will all go out a little challenged about our journey in life. In Jesus' name. So, if anyone knew, I'm Don. Uh, Laura and I do a Christmas Eve service every year. And this year we talked about the journeys, our journey in life, and then the journeys and the Christmas story. And um, the pastor approached me a couple weeks ago and said, um, how do I stop shaking? <laughs> Pray for me. So he approached me and said, "I want you to do the I want you and Laura to do the journey again or sort of again, but just, you know, adapt it." I thought, "Oh, cool, we can do this. We're a team." And then it was like between him and God, it was like, "No, you're going to do this, and it's not going to be Christmas Eve. You're going to bring a new message." So <laughs> I'm like, "Okay." Um, but if you miss Christmas Eve because I'm not going to go back over all that, it's on our YouTube channel, plug and our Facebook page plug. So in review from Christmas Eve, you like my little travel, uh, my travel graphic? Because we're going on a trip today. Hope you're ready. And I just want to say, Waymaker, you know, none of our journeys, all of our journeys will be dead ends if Jesus wasn't the Waymaker. And thank you, Jackie. That's just proof right there. So that worked in perfectly. So on Christmas Eve, we talked about the journeys taken in the actual events at the birth of Jesus drew comparisons to our journey while here on Earth, um, did a little research, and the journey that, jo- that Mary took to Elizabeth when Elizabeth was pregnant with John the Baptist was about 80 miles, and Joseph went with her, and then Joseph came back and left her there, and then Joseph went back and picked her up after the birth, and she stayed with John the Baptist baby for a while. Um, So that was an 80-mile trip one way, so that was very interesting. The journey of Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, riding through rugged terrain on a donkey, unborn baby Jesus. The journey of the wise men, the journey to flee for their safety after being warned by an angel, just to name a few. There were a lot of journeys in the Christmas story, which led to our theme. So our takeaway from that night was that our Emmanuel, our God with us, is indeed with us on every part of our journey. He he promised to never leave us or forsake us. So, life is a journey. It's not just Christians that talk about life being a journey. It's in pop culture. Um, Ralph Waldo Emerson is known for this written quote, Life is a journey, not a destination. And I'll actually come back to this because it's not entirely true as Christians. Um, any movie fans, you know, the Pixar series Cars. Well, Rascal Flatts did the theme song, Life is a Highway. doesn't say a lot about the destination, but some of the first words are, are spot on. Life's like a road that you travel on. When there's one day here and the next day gone, sometimes you bend. Sometimes you stand. Sometimes you turn your back to the wind. Life is a highway. I want to ride it all night long. <laughs> And then there are books um, in secular culture like Bill Gates, The Road Ahead, Robert Frost, The Road Not Taken, Christian Books too. Billy Graham wrote The Journey, (laughs) local pastor Jerry Falwell wrote Strength for the Journey, Um, John Bunyan, younger ones who study classics will know Pilgrim's Progress, that's about the journey and meeting people on the way. So when Pastor began this series, he revisited this concept, but he didn't call it the journey, he called it the process. So I thought, well, how much difference is that? Not really any, Um, which is why he asked me to stand here and he gets to listen, (laughs) which is good. I'm I'm convincing myself. so God is good. Um, I'm really excited about what God's given me because I had no idea where we were going to go with this. So um, the dictionary definition of journey is an act of traveling from one place to another. Pretty simple, right? The dictionary definition of process is a series of actions, not one act or steps, taken in order to achieve a particular end. That particular end could be the destination. So yeah, I'm like, okay, they are pretty similar. So if where we are going is not a physical place until we're in heaven, but instead a purpose in our life while on earth, the real destination is to achieve God's purpose for our life. It's not even a place. It's, it's a place in our heart. Um, so these terms are interchangeable. You know, we call ourselves sometimes, instead of saying Christians, we say we're a Jesus follower. Well, if you're a follower, there's someone ahead of you going somewhere. So you can't follow without some kind of movement. And if Jesus is leading us and we are following him, our life is indeed a journey with our story still being written. We're in the process of reaching our purpose, our destination. One moment. Allergies are part of my journey this morning, (laughs) so bear with me. I tried to come up with a journey in the Bible that was without purpose. You know, there's purpose in the process, is what I called this, and Jesus in the journey. Some journeys were to find a wife, some were to escape bondage, some were to flee for safety, some were to be in a special place to hear from God. But it always seems that the recorded physical journeys were all done with a purpose of God at the core. That's why I love this overlap. Now, if you can think of one that was not without purpose, I'm I'm ears. Let me hear. All right, anyone ready to take a road trip? Lots of comparisons um, to an actual road trip to our spiritual journey in life. So here's just a few of them. Uh, One, for every off-ramp, there's an on-ramp. Same in life. Well, actually, I say usually. Usually. Um, I think we've encountered a couple that got us off and get us back on. Uh, Two, you can get lost at least for a while, but it helps to get directions from someone who knows the way. As Christians, we get to counsel each other as the body. We give direction. Um, We can pray for wisdom and expect to receive it liberally. That's what James says. Of course, in today's world, we don't always stop and ask anymore, and it's not just a guy thing. It's because we have this Right? Um, sometimes we just need to let our GPS or our Alexa or our Siri or something go rerouting. And then we need to trust that rerouting to actually get us there. But in our spiritual journey, we can let God and the Holy Spirit be our GPS, right? Uh, three, at times on a road trip, as in life, there are emergencies. Some are easily fixed, like a flat tire, seeing a doctor for a broken bone. Most of the time, it's just an annoyance, and inconvenience. On occasion, there's a total breakdown. That happens in life, too, where we just need a complete transformation. That takes time in prayer and encouraging each other. I do remember one time our transmission went out in Richmond, and we just had to be patient and wait and get it fixed and be thankful we had a place to get it fixed, Right? I remember another time we were traveling from Pennsylvania to Virginia. We were actually following um, our other family car, and our car died, and they didn't really know it, and they kept going. So we were stuck in Hancock, Maryland for about three days, which wasn't a bad place. It gave us the chance to experience somewhere we hadn't been, local community we wouldn't have stopped at, eat at places we wouldn't have eaten at, take walks because we didn't have a car, throw the football, do you remember that, David? Throw the football in the hotel parking lot. Thankfully, we had one. Just finding ways to pass that time. Four, sometimes on our road trip we are going so much in the wrong direction we need to just stop and make a U-turn. This happened to Paul. You know, he was known as Saul at the time. He was on the road to Damascus and Jesus just got a hold of him. One day he was murdering Christians. The next day he was following Jesus. Actually, for all of us, the day we choose to follow Jesus is our U-turn. Um, He takes us from the total darkness we're born into into the kingdom of light. Five. Of course, in life and on the road, there are rules to drive by and live by. And it usually works best if we follow them. (laughs) And if the people around you are also following them, that's the key. Um, Sometimes you run into someone, or maybe they run into us, literally. Literally. Someone who refuses to obey the law, and it ruins everything. And then six, a road trip is a chance to enjoy the scenery while you head to wherever you're going. Both are important. The trip is so much more than just the destination, at least if you want to fully enjoy and experience it. If you're always trying to get somewhere and don't enjoy the scenery, the sights, you may miss the important parts and beauty along the way. If you sleep the whole trip and your dad drives, you don't see what I see, right? There are so many important opportunities to see new things, experience life from a different perspective. And just like those rest stops on the interstate, we need those two in our life. Because Jesus tells us when we are weary to come to him and we will find rest, his rest. And then one more thing is always true. You can read about the trip. You can watch a documentary. You can see your friend's Instagram posts, you know, and just, oh, I have a friend right now out. In the West, and the Sequoias, and the Yellowstone, and all that, it's like, that's amazing. But it's not like being there. It's not like being there. Never the same unless you're taking the trip yourself. Same is true with our spiritual journey. The process is experiencing the sights. Whether it's a really good sight, or whether it's one of those you're stuck in for a while, like Hancock, Maryland, no offense, it was a nice place, but it wasn't where I planned to be. (coughs) Scripture uses examples of real people and their lessons while on their journeys to guide us and to give us cautions. Yet we often still need to take the trip ourselves to see the sights ourselves because we don't get it. We're just we're humans. We don't get it. In his devotional Truth for Life, um, Alistair Bear writes about I'm sorry, Alistair Begg writes about the cost of complaining, which seems to be one of the key lessons on life's journeys as I look through Scripture and in my own life. The more grateful we are, the less we complain. So he writes, there should be no grumbling in the Christian life. That was a lesson that Israel learned the hard way and learned slowly. After God freed them from slavery in Egypt, the Israelites received his law, were given his commands, and knew their destination. They eagerly set out to reach the promised land, but began to complain. They wanted meat to eat instead of manna, and they even wished they were back in Egypt. Where once they had thought of God's daily provision of manna as a wonderful indication of his love for them. Now they're complaining about not having to eat, about having to eat the same old thing every single day. Interesting fact about how God led the Israelites, if they had gone the wrong way, I'm sorry, not the wrong way, but the way most scholars think is the direct route, it would have taken them about a week to arrive at the promised land. Instead, we read in Exodus 13, When Pharaoh finally let the people go, God did not lead them along the main road that runs through the Philistine territory, even though that was the shortest route to the Promised Land. God said, if the people are faced with a battle, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. They didn't have the song (laughs) yet. So God led them in a roundabout way through the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and they traveled for over a year, taking their long way, before they sent out spies in the land of Canaan. See, in Egypt, they had been slaves. They had been worked hard for their manual labor. They weren't experienced in warfare, so they would have been crushed. God was actually protecting them in the long run. He was working his purpose in the process. And we, too, live in a quick-fix society where we want everything right now. We don't want to take the time. But sometimes we need to allow time for the process. Excuse me. The Israelites, they had already seen God at work. I mean, they already had a track record. He he kept them safe during the plagues. They had already seen the sea separate and their enemy destroyed. But we're a lot like them sometimes, aren't we? Um, they panicked. They knew they had no way to escape on their own. God did a miracle again, and God was teaching them to trust him. Sadly, they didn't get that lesson. Because even though Joshua and Caleb, when they went into Canaan, were filled with faith in being able to take the giants, they were the only two. So because the people wavered and were, they were sentenced to one year for in the desert for every day spent spying. So that then turned into another 40 years in the desert. And most of them, well, we know the story. Most of them didn't make it. Two of the biggest lessons they were being taught on that journey were those of trusting God and showing gratefulness. So we're going to camp out a little bit in Numbers 11, which... um I found very interesting in light of our journey, because I think we can learn from their journey. Before Numbers 11, in the first ten chapters of Numbers, Israel was ordered, organized, cleansed, separated, blessed, taught how to give, reminded of God's presence and his deliverance, and had the tools to advance to the promised land. Now, after setting out towards Canaan, just a few days, after just a few days, the people complained. So, Numbers 11. Now, the people became like those who complain of adversity in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord heard them. And his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some at the outskirts of the camp. So, even though it was all negative talk, the Lord heard them. But he wasn't very happy. He started some fires burning. So, the people cried out to Moses. And then Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. So at least they knew their chain of authority, I guess. Uh, Go to verse 4. Now the rabble who were among them had greedy cravings, and the sons of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? So the rabble, it's not a word we use very often in in English. Um, I had to look it up. It's a disorderly crowd, a mob, an uncontrollable group. I'm, we could use that word, I, I'm sure. But uh, some people believe that these were actually the Egyptians who fled with the Israelites from Egypt when they left. They said in verse 5 We remember the fish which we used to eat for free in Egypt the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. That's an appetizing diet. Sounds actually healthy, though. But now our appetite's gone. There's nothing at all to look at except this manna. Think about that. God was giving them manna every day so they would stay alive in the desert, and they're complaining. There's nothing to eat but this manna. Take me back to bondage. I want want to smell like garlic. (laughs) Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance was like that of bdellium. The people would roam about and gather it and grind it between two millstones or pound it in the mortar and boil it in the pot and make loaves with it and its taste was like the taste of cake baked with oil. When the dew came down on the camp at night, the manna would come down with it. So Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, each one at the entrance of his tent. So everybody was weeping and crying and wailing out. That this is not just one or two people, it sounds like. I mean, as a leader, that's, you know, I don't like drama in my workplace. As a leader, that's, that's when it will get to you. And the anger of the Lord became very hot, and Moses was displeased. Just like, uh-oh. I want you to notice how the leader now becomes the rabble, because he listened to the people, instead of him too remembering where he was on his journey with God. Listen, listen to how he talks to God in the next verse. Listen to how he talks to God as you, like blame, and how he talks about all the eyes and the me's, because it's all about Moses now. So Moses said to the Lord, why have you been so hard on your servant, and why have I not found favor in your sight, that you have put the burden on all this people on me? Was it I who conceived this people? Did I give them birth, that you should say to me, carry them in your arms as a nurse carries a nursing infant to the land which you swore to their fathers? And where am I going to get meat to give all these people? He wasn't even thinking about God's possibility as the answer. He was like, what am I going to do? They weep before me saying, give us meat so we may eat. I'm not able to carry all these people by myself. It's too burdensome for me. So if you're going to deal with me this way, just kill me now. Just take me out. I'm done. Whew. If I but uh, uh, take me out if I found favor in your sight. That's <laughs> and do not let me see my misery. So yeah, Moses is saying Go ahead God, take me out now i 'm He was throwing a pity party i 'm ready to quit, and this all started over a desire to eat some leeks and onions by the way. <laughs> I want you to notice though what do you think God would say if we did that to him you shouldn 't act like that you should You should be thankful you should this, you should that no it 's not what he does actually. Um, He shows him mercy and grace. He doesn't chide him at all. The first thing the Lord said to Moses was, Gather for me 70 men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and their officers, and bring them to the tent of meeting and have them take their stand there with you. So he immediately recognizes Moses' frustration and says, I got an answer. I'm going to help you. I know you're desperate right now. This is hard. This is burdensome. I'm going to ease your burden a little bit. Verse 17, then I will come down and speak with you there and I will take away some of the spirit who is upon you and put it upon them and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so you will not bear it by yourself. So he helped him delegate, helped him have people to stand by his side and accompany him. And, um, you know, God listens to Moses' concerns in spite of the pity party. He shows mercy. He eases the burden. He takes the pressure off. I mean, there were 600,000 people. Now there's 70 people leading 600,000 people. That's still a lot, but um, it's better than one. Verse 18, And you shall say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Oh, that someone would give us meat to eat. For we were well off in Egypt, therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. That sounds pretty easy. It's like, wow. We complained, and God heard us, and now we're just going to get meat. This is cool, right? There's usually a but. <laughs> There's a but. In fact, he goes on to say, you shall eat meat not one day, not two days, not five days, not ten days, not even twenty days. A whole month you shall eat meat till it comes out of your nose, <laughs> and makes you nauseated because you rejected the Lord who is among you, and you wept before him, saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? So I'll give you what you want, but be careful what you ask for. So Moses said, the people among whom I am included are 600,000 on foot. Yet you have said, I will give them meat, so that they may eat for a whole month. Moses is still hard-headed. Where is he, where's he going to get the meat? He said, are flocks and herds to be slaughtered for them? Like, Do you see cows in the desert? (laughs) How will it be sufficient for them? Are all the fish of the sea to be caught for them? I mean, are you going to, like, unload all the animals you've created just to feed these people? And the Lord said to Moses, is the Lord's power too little? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. I love the NIV version, is the Lord's arm too short? Now you will see whether or not what I say will come true. He's saying, is my hand not long enough to reach down to you? Um, Indirectly, he's saying, what about the times that, what are you forgetting? God hasn't changed. He will still do what he says he will do. So, verse, verse 24. So, Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. He also gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and positioned them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, and he took away some of the spirit who was upon him and placed him upon the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. Yet they did not do it again. I think it was interesting. uh, Something I I read that I uh, wrote down here is before God provided the meat for Israel, which they asked for but didn't really need, he first provided them with leadership and oversight which they didn't ask for, but is really what they needed. So he gave them what they needed. He gave them what they asked for, and then were probably sorry, but he really gave them something more um, than what they needed. Isn't that just like our God? Um, we're going to skip to verse 31. There's an interesting story you can read later about how there were two that weren't even present in that group who were prophesying in, at their tents, just showing how the power of God in that moment swept through the entire place. But I'm going to go to verse 31. Now a wind burst forth from the Lord, and it brought quail from the sea and dropped them beside the camp, about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp, and about two cubits deep on the surface of the ground. And the people spent all that day, all night, and all the next day, and they gathered the quail, the one who gathered least, Gathered ten homers, and there's an interp- there's there's a silly baseball joke in there, but I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I heard that on something I listened to, and I was tempted. Uh, they spread themselves out for all around the camp. So back to ver- back to the end of that verse 32. Ten homers. We don't measure by homers. I mean, yeah, the baseball kind I like. But um, and I'm glad the season's back coming. But. Um, The ten homers, we don't use that as our measurements today. So what is it, right? It's about 55 bushels. So what would that mean in terms of quail? About 1,900 birds. About 500 pounds. It was still between their teeth. Before it was chewed, they didn't even swallow it. The anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. So that place was named Kibroth Teva because there they buried the people who had been greedy. The people who complained and were not grateful. Key lessons on our journey, wherever you are on your journey. We don't want to learn our lessons the hard way. We should learn from those who have already learned the hard way. So what about the process so we don't repeat these mistakes? The process is really just another word for spiritual growth, discipline, discipleship, or sanctification. That's all it is, really. But that's what it is, and sanctification is happening every day in our lives. So it's our spiritual journey where we continually confront twists, turns, and stages on the road to becoming like Jesus. So whether or not we realize it, the process is the quest for an intimate relationship with our creator God himself, along the path, faith is refined and we learn to trust deeply God and his love for us. The Christian journey, as I said earlier, is not instant. It's not automatic. Um, a process can be quick. I'm sure there are some chemical, chemistry processes, right, that can be quick. But most processes take time. Again, we live in a time we want quick fixes. We want to do an instant Google search. We want to read a self-help fic- book that will fix us overnight. Those things don't work as well. They take time. Remember the desert. One week turned into 40 years, and that's why the word talks so much about patience and tells us to press on and to endure. So, all of our journeys are similar, yet they're all different, right? Um, becoming like Christ is a long, slow process of growth. Spiritual maturity, as I said, takes time. It's not automatic, it's not instant, it's gradual. We read that in Ephesians 4.13, where Paul says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. But i got some bad news possibly for you. We won't get there this side of heaven. We won't get there on earth. We won't get to that destination ultimately. We'll just keep getting closer to it. We trek onward through a vast series of relationships and circumstances all designed to conform us to the likeness of Jesus. The process of us becoming molded into a distinct representation of him with all of our uniqueness of personhood intact is our individual journey. Dallas Willard is known for saying, being a disciple of Jesus is becoming who he would be if he were you. I love that. Being a disciple of Jesus is becoming who he would be if he were you. This is the spiritual journey you're on to become who Jesus would be if he were you, to become more and more like him. So you are a work in progress. I am a work in progress. Developing the character of Jesus will take the rest of your life. So press on. Um, Even then, it won't be completed here on earth. 1 John 3.2 says that when you're finally able to see Jesus perfectly, that's when you'll become perfectly like him. He writes, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. Until we see him, we will never be fully like him, though it is our purpose and our destination in the process. So we're all on our journey going through the process until we fulfill God's purpose for us to become like him. Um, The process is in the Old Testament, just uh, not expounded as much. Psalm 57.2 says, I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me or his purposes. Proverbs 20.24 says, A man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can a person understand his way? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. We see the process in the New Testament even more clearly. Philippians two twelve to 13, So then my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to desire and to work for his good pleasure. And then in the next chapter, um, the letter to the Philippians says, not that I have already grasped it all or have already become perfect, but I press on. If I may also take hold of that for which I was even taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, well, that's, remember the U-turn? Yeah, that's what that's pointing back to. Brothers and sisters, I do not regard myself as having taken hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. First Thessalonians five twenty-three says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be kept complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will do it. So he will complete the work. <clears throat> So you know i 've always heard um, from others who speak that when God gives you a message it 's for you first <laughs> so um, so i 'm going to spend a, a few minutes um, personalizing it with some thoughts of our journey the current leg of well the current leg of my journey, but it 's really our journey um, even though we 're on our own journeys Laura and i it's funny how God can do that. I was telling her today coming in, I said, um, what God's saying to me on my journey, even though it's our journey, is probably different than what God's saying to you on your journey. And it's, it's interesting. And then she said, well, yeah, I feel like I'm on the, you're on the interstate highway and I'm down on these country roads. I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah. And that can that work too. Both of them can get there, right? Yes, exactly. So life is one long journey. I, I, I used to, th- when, I, when we, I think when we did this at Christmas Eve, I was thinking this part, this is our journey, this, the medical um, process we're going through. But really the, as I just said, the whole, the journey is life itself. The journey is you're born, you glorify God, you find your purpose, which is becoming like Him. But there are lots of legs on the journey. <laughs> there are lots of different roads, you know. Um, it's really like a marathon. Now, I've run, never run a marathon, but I have run a half twice, though it's been a few years. I couldn't do it today, I don't think. Um, no two miles feel the same. If anyone runs or does any kind of other activity, no two miles feel the same. The first one, you're just trying to, to warm up. The second one, and third one, you kind of start to feel good. Once you get to 9, 10, 11, 12, you're not feeling so good. And then you're hitting walls, and then you're just pressing forward. And then finally, when you can see that finish line, in the last several hundred feet, you, it changes everything. It's like, I can do this, I can do this. But if I had stopped on any of those miles where I didn't feel like doing it, I would never have that experience. So life is like that. Um, what I've learned is that God isn't often telling us, though, anything new. I mean, we saw that with the Israelites, right? Not anything we don't know, but is using our current mile, our current leg of our journey, to amplify something in our lives, to get us to listen to something that he's already said and make it more real and stronger. It's all in his word, and what we learn and experience he has already told us, but he uses that place we're in in our individual journey to cause that lesson in his word to go deeper in our hearts. So think about, as we go through the rest of this this word, think about your own current leg of your journey and see if that's true. Or ask him what you are to be learning on this mile of the journey if you haven't. And if you're not going through a tough mile in the journey, just give it time because it happens to all of us. (laughs) Um, So my journey with Laura, our current journey together, um, began in the fall when Laura had major surgery in October. Um, She had successful removal of a cancerous mass. So our journey started before then, of course, when we got the word and started praying and started trusting, leaning into God. And um, we appreciate all the prayers you guys have done on our behalf. God's favor and grace was clearly with us. Still is. it won't leave us. Um, Tomorrow we go in for round 10 of 12 scheduled rounds of chemotherapy. So we're nearing our finish line. We can almost see that, you know, um, finish. But there will still be more on that journey after. We know that too. Just just continued... um, good health habits, if nothing else. Um, Just making sure all the cancer is eradicated. So again, we appreciate your continued prayers. So with Laura and our medical journey, what has God been saying to me? And um, again, the sights I'm seeing, the attractions I'm experiencing, are things I've already seen the brochures about. I just never got to go to. Because I really didn't want to. I didn't want to go to that place. Or I didn't know how it would help me to go to that place. So the first thing is to give grace and then give it again and keep on giving it. And Laura knows I'm using her, so I do have her permission, but um, if she's tired, she's not feeling well, maybe the medications are causing her to act a little differently than before. I just choose to give grace. I don't think I understood that in the beginning. Sometimes that just means doing things Um, differently. Sometimes that's letting her rest. Sometimes that's biting my tongue and not saying what I felt like saying. Though I can crack some pretty uh, bad dad jokes. And uh, hopefully that adds some grace to the situation. Just, you know, because humor is good, right? It's the best medicine. Giving grace isn't new. It's something Jesus had already shown us. James says he gives more grace. Paul tells the Ephesians, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bear with one another in love. David sings in the Psalms about God being merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Again, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times you may abound in every good work. All in every Another thing he's reminding me of is just what we learned about the desert experience, to give thanks, and with the giving of thanks, to trust him. Um, Be thankful for what we have, for the health we do have, for the friends, for the favor, for the good days, for how God is working in us. It could always be worse. I know people say that, but it really could always be worse. And thank him for how we can look back and see his faithfulness. You know, that's what the Israelites forgot or got their eyes off of. They got their eyes in the now, not what God had already done for them. I mean, I love to find silver linings, and I think that's part of the gratefulness. I think I've been doing that ever since COVID hit and the world changed. Just find the silver lining, you know. Getting to work from home is not so bad. It's really kind of cool. Um, Gratefulness is finding the silver linings and looking for how God is working things together for our good. You know, has already talked about Romans 8, 28, and for all things work together. Um, so it's looking for that. Remember the desert and wanting to eat meat instead of being thankful for the manna? Yeah, that's, that's the lesson. And then Paul says in 1 Thessalonians to rejoice always and give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In Colossians, he says, to walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. David writes a song that commands us to give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And in Philippians, Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by grace, I'm sorry, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. There's the word. Present your request to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your heights and hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We had, a couple of weeks ago, Laura had a reaction and I was telling Pastor, all I could do was, all I knew to do, I was the only one with her, I called for help, I texted people here to pray and I called out the name of Jesus and that was really all I could do other than sit back and trust that he was going to be good and get us through it. I couldn't fix anything else and um, I feel like I was, less um, anxious than I would have been had I not done all that. I mean, just in my own past experience. And so that was that's putting that lesson to application. Uh, and then I thought it was no accident this morning that this is the Alistair Begg book that I had that quote from earlier. It's a devotional called Truth for Life. And I thought it was no accident this morning that the devotional was called Gracious Gratitude like, hmm, are you saying something that I should add or not? But it's talking about how there's a difference between natural gratitude and gracious gratitude. Natural gratitude we cannot, is something everybody can do. All of us can be naturally thankful. Gracious gratitude we cannot do without the Holy Spirit and without God in our lives. And it tells the story of Jonathan Edwards um, who wrote Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, you know, for your history. He died of a smallpox vaccination. But what jumped out to me was how Sarah, his wife, she wrote to their daughter about that. And she said, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. She was as honest as David was in the Psalms, right? She was actually as honest as Moses was and he was crying out, but she didn't quite do it the same way. But she was really honest. No superficial triumphalism, it says. But her husband was not taken out by chance. It was the overruling sovereignty of God that determined the right time to bring Jonathan home to his eternal eternal reward. She didn't stop writing there. That's the point. She continued, but my God lives, and he has my heart. We're all given to God, and there I am and love to be. So that's the gracious gratitude, and we can pray that we have that in addition to natural gratitude, which is also good to have. And one other lesson I'm getting better at, I think, <laughs> you can ask her, um, is to be selfless and to serve. Uh, might be something I don't want to do, something you know, something she doesn't want to do, but I want to do, and then I just got to put my plans aside. Um, sometimes it's just because she doesn't know which is a good day and a bad day. You know, and and I have to be reminded of that because I'm not thinking that way. And it's like, oh, let's go do this. It could just be as simple as washing dishes. Maybe I don't want to do them, and she doesn't either, but I do them anyway. I do have to keep my motives checked, though, because sometimes you know they're not as pure as they should be. So, um, but we all work on that, right? I have to consider the timing and defer my needs sometimes, and um, esteem her higher than. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. He tells us to take up our cross daily, follow Paul, um, and and follow. Paul encourages us in Philippians to have humility and gentleness, patience, and to bear with one another in love. In Thessalonians, he asks that we encourage one another and build one another up. So life is a journey and a destination, a process but also a goal accomplished. Now, back to that Emerson quote that I told you we'd get back to. Life is a journey. Or yeah, life is a journey, not a destination. He wrote this maxim in an essay called Self Reliance when he said, It's not the destination, it's the journey. His essay was intended to convince people to avoid conformity, and in it he stressed that for one to be truly significant, he or she had to follow their own conscience and do their own thing, which is not right, right? He contended that the process of creating is its own reward. And that we can only feel relieved and happy in life when we pour our hearts into our work and do our best, anything else or anything less will give us no peace. He wasn't thinking like we think. But um, granted, life is a journey filled with lessons, hardships, heartaches, joys, celebrations, special moments that lead us to our destination or purpose. Our path will not always be smooth, but it will in fact include many challenges. Emerson wrote that we should not be so focused on the end result or outcome of our goal, but to pay attention to the process and not be so overly concerned about getting to a certain place. We know from what we read earlier that, yes, the journey is important. We see the sights. We have God's word amplified in our life through the lessons. But the destination is the only reason as Christians that our journey has any meaning with an eternal perspective. Otherwise, it wouldn't be worth it. Those things are changing us to be like Jesus and preparing us for our eternal home. If we lose sight of our ultimate destination, our journey through life's challenges becomes meaningless. When you and I stop thinking of our destination as believers, we'll miss the opportunities throughout life that God gives us to refine our character, to give him glory, to share with others, and ultimately prepare for our eternity with him in heaven. Near the end of his life, the Apostle Paul writes this to Timothy about our own journey. 2 Timothy 4, 7, and 8 says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, that, that's a key word there, I think. you know It's the end of a long process. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I've got to get a prop. So, I hope I can do this. So, when we <laughs> when we lost our father five years ago, and my mom's probably watching, so I want to honor him. This verse was very important to us. We used it in his service um, because he lived it, and I want to live it. So, the year that we had his service was actually the... the the day that we had a service in 2017 was actually the, the day of the 10-miler, which I had run about six or seven times in a row, so I missed it. So I took my medal along to the service and held it up and talked about this. And then the following year, I said, I want to really honor him, and I made a shirt that I wore in the next 10-miler. And it's that verse, 2 Timothy 4.7, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith, and I added, run well, and finish well. So every runner behind me, and there's probably more in front of me than behind me, but every (laughs) so that every runner behind me was reminded, had a verse, but also just, even if all they saw was run well and finish well, God could use that. So um, I wanted to do that to honor him. One other thing, I was thinking about dad when I was thinking about that, um, and mom, because they were both part of this. But uh, one more lesson about how God is with us on our journey. Not only that, but he prepares us for our journey. Um, we may not even notice, he's, even when you know he's working, we don't notice. It's one of those times, usually. We would visit home, you know, living in Virginia. They live in Pennsylvania. And my dad would always make sure we either had money to fill our gas tank or had a full gas tank for the trip back. And it hit me how God, too, fills our gas tanks. You know, he prepares us. He goes ahead of us. I, I have a little journal I kept with several of the ways that he did that, in, especially back in September, October, when we were starting our journey. I was like, oh, wow. God was going ahead of us. <laughs> he was preparing us. One of the ways was we, you know, support Relay for Life, which is an organization raising money to fight cancer, at my workplace. And I work with, Um, two other leaders in my department and we had the opportunity to to, um, adopt a day or sponsor a day, whatever you call it, so I said, why don't we just do the 30th because we can easily divide that up between the three of us, 10, 10, 10, and it's not stretching any of us, but we're making a difference. That turned out to be the very day that Laura went in for her CT scan before her surgery. And I had no idea. And that when I realized that, it gave me goosebumps, actually, because I just realized God was so in this. He knew, and the small details that he knew helped me latch onto to that later when we needed bigger faith. So if I could trust him in the small, I knew I could trust him for the surgery and anything that came after. So there is an ultimate journey, um, which is when the Word was made flesh. So I'm going to wrap this up going back to really kind of the Christmas theme. In the Gospel of John we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And a few verses later, John writes, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. So Jesus left the side of God to become flesh and bone, humanity, the ultimate journey. Just like we started with Mary and Joseph traveling Pregnant with Jesus, we too are all traveling our own journey with Jesus. While the going may be long and difficult, every footstep of faith leads us closer to him and to eternal life. We only have the gift of eternal life because he made it possible with the ultimate journey. With us in mind. Philippians 2 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. As fully God, yet fully man, Jesus' journey took him to the cross, where he made possible our salvation, and to the grave, where his resurrection gives us eternal life. And this was the best journey of all, because without it, ours wouldn't matter at all. One of my favorite authors, Frederick Buechner, um, wrote this. Each one of us could describe his or her life as a sacred journey. You are journeying from the beginning to the end, and what makes it sacred is that in the process of this journey, you encounter the holy in various forms, which unless you have your eyes open, you might not even notice. That's why I'm glad I kept that log of what God did in the small ways before I you know, had bigger need for faith. So find out what God is saying specifically to you. But I bet it will have something to do with growing in your faith by trusting him more deeply and being thankful for all he has already done and will continue to do on your journey. And know this, um, Philippians 1.6, and I will tell you, if you have anything over the years signed by Jerry Falwell, you will see it. I found this at Goodwill, but (laughs) you will see it. Philippians 1.6. And it's not a new thing. I think I saw Jerry Falwell before I ever came to Lynchburg um, at an Isle of America rally, probably 76 or 77. And he signed my Bible, and he signed it then. So this has been his lifelong verse. Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So wherever you're at on your journey, it's not going to end badly. It's not going to end with that, that current mile or that current leg of the journey. You might learn some hard lessons, especially if you've forgotten some lessons. That's our takeaway. But, um, and if you need to start your journey, maybe you haven't met Jesus yet, done your U-turn, talk to one of us on the prayer team, the pastor, myself, the worship team um, after. But um, the summation of both your journey and your destination is that he will continue it and complete it. Be confident. Godspeed on your travels. Thank you for listening to this message from Cornerstone Community Church. We are located in Lynchburg, Virginia at 525 Old Graves Mill Road. You can find us online at cornerstonelynchburg.com. Contact us by email, cornerstonecom@comcast.net, at or call us at 434 847 we pray the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace.